And if you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, as we continue our study there. Hebrews 13, and I'll actually read, starting in verse uh, chapter 12, rather, verse 28, and I'll read to the end of verse 6 of chapter 13. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The title of this message, as you can plainly see, is Brotherly Love in Purity. I want to show my cards, put them on the table to give you a sense of why I'm approaching the text this way. The first conviction I have is that the first commands we see in chapter 13, let brotherly love continue, is in a sense a title for the rest of the chapter. It gives us a sense of the framework that we're to understand love and holiness through. It's the main command, let brotherly love continue. The rest flows from it. And then if you go back to chapter 10, verse 32 through 35, it says that we're supposed to stir one another up to love and good works. And I don't think that we should separate love and good works. There are not two movements of the Christian life, love and then good works. It's love in good works. They're not two separate things. And then number three, our lives affect others for good and bad, as we'll see in one of the texts that we'll read That's proximate to this, at least in what it covers. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So what your decisions are as an individual Christian and how you live in purity or impurity affects the whole body. So we're to to express our brotherly love in one way through purity. Part of the reason, maybe, in fact, one of the main reasons you should live a pure life is to show love to your brothers and sisters in Christ for the glory of God. God doesn't need us in the most fundamental sense. Who has given Him a gift that He might be repaid? Some of us, and I think this is the easy trap to fall into, our motivation for holiness is something like this. Hey God, look at me. I've been really pure or holy for these last few months or weeks or days. About time for some blessing, am I right? Or the opposite. Well, I've not been very holy for a while. It's no wonder I lost my job or my kids are disrespectful or my wife isn't very interested in me. And that mindset just pushes the level of idolatry back one step further. 
And it makes God, at least in your mind, into a facilitator of our idolatry. So the way out of that cul-de-sac of insanity is to take yourself out of the equation. The way of humility and holiness is opened up to you when you stop thinking about yourself and your track record and your holiness credits, if you will, and focus on loving your brother and sister for the glory of God. It's sort of like Paul says in Corinthians. And in Christ, he says, all things are permissible. This is what the church in Corinth said to them. All things, I mean, we have freedom in Christ, Christian liberty. All things are permissible. And then he corrects them very quickly. But not all things are helpful. So it shouldn't be a question about what am I, what do I have permissions to do or not to do within the Christian context. It's what is helpful to your brothers and sisters. We need a perspective change. And I think this text, in context, gives us that change of perspective. Because the summons of holiness as a Christian isn't just, be better, get it together, why are you so sinful? Be pure and holy. And, there, and if we're honest with ourselves, that type of summons to a holy life hasn't really helped that much. It doesn't motivate us. And even if it had, you're probably stuck in a cycle of self-righteousness looking down on those who can't get it together. This text places purity and holiness and, in general, a rejection of idolatry in the context of brotherly love. Holiness, then, is a community project. Think of that. Holiness is a community project of helping one another persevere in the life of faith. And this is what we've seen throughout Hebrews the entire time. Exhorting one another is so that we would continue to hold fast to our confession and continue to live a holy life. We need each other in order to produce the holiness that God requires, without which no one will see the Lord. So, I want to say something before we get into the text itself. It's not that these areas of holiness are the only ones that matter. Okay, It's not that purity and keeping your life free of the love of money are the only areas of emphasis for a Christian. I think these functions like bookends. Think of it this way. Purity or holiness from the marriage bed to the bank account. Two ends of the spectrum. Sort of like saying from head to toe. Uh, my going out and my coming in. It covers everything. And I also, I think the reason he's focusing in on these areas is because these two represent uh, particular areas of weakness, areas that people in general, and yes, even Christians, twist into sin. So let's look at these two ends of the spectrum of holiness closely. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all. A literal translation of this would read something like this, honorable marriage in all. There's actually no verb in this phrase, but the way the grammar works is is taken as an imperative. Marriage must be honored by everyone. That's what he's saying. Honored by everyone. It's not a private concern. He doesn't say, make sure each one of you honor marriage in your own lives. He's saying, in your community, you must ensure that marriage is held in honor by everyone. If you're married or not, if you're young or old, if you're male or female, marriage, the institution of marriage and marriage is, must be held in honor. Everyone in the church needs to think this way. And you need to make sure it's the case. 
And so what is he saying? What, what, what is he saying with this word honorable? A lot of it hinges on the meaning of that word. Marriage must be honorable. It means it's the same word translated precious in other places. So Paul says to the Ephesian elders, I do not account my life as of any value nor as precious to myself. And then in 1 Corinthians, when Paul is discussing how a person builds on the foundation of Christ, he says you can build with precious stones, like jewels that aren't destroyed by fire at the judgment. That's, that's the sense he's talking about here. It's precious. It's super valuable. It's worth being guarded, treasured, and protected. So how are we to apply this first imperative? Marriage must be held as honorable among everyone. How can we treat, treat it as precious, hold it as honorable? Why should we make sure to make it a group effort? I think there's part of this that is seen in our brotherly love for each other. When you see brothers and sisters helping each other so that they can prioritize their marriage, that is holding marriage as precious. It's a bearing of one another's burdens. It's difficult to treat marriage as precious the way it ought to be. And so when we bear one another's burdens and help married couples do that and guard the preciousness of their marriage, that's what this looks like. It also influences our evangelism. Think of that. The health of our marriages, I think, is actually a very neglected area of our evangelism. One of my mentors told me a story. He worked in a secular context at a very large uh, mobile network carrier, successful salesman there. And he just made it a point to where he would always speak positive about his wife in his workplace. If you know anything about corporate workplaces, it's a place where you come and kind of air your grievances about whatever. Uh, And often, among men especially, we can just complain, complain about work, complain about your boss, complain about your wife. And so he made the decision, I will always speak positively about my wife. And he had non-Christians coming to him, asking him, what do you have that I don't? Because marriage, as we'll see in a little bit, reflects the gospel. It is a prime area of evangelism. That's how we show it as precious. We should also hold it as precious, honorable in our pursuit of sanctification. If you're married, or if you plan to be, your spouse is the number one person in your life that God has placed in your life for you to become more holy. And it's that way in every case. There are no exceptions. The number one person God has placed in your life to help you become more holy is your spouse. That's how we hold it as precious as a group, that we think about it this way. The love that we see between Christian husbands and wives is a reflection of the unity that Jesus says is necessary for the world to believe that our message is true from John 17. If we're supposed to be unified so that the world would know our message is true, shouldn't it at least be the case between husbands and wives who confess the name of Jesus? And then he says, And let the marriage bed be undefiled. Literally, and the bed undefiled. There's no verb. So actually in the verse, the only explicit verb is judge, which is interesting. We'll talk about that later. So grammatically, it functions the same way. The bed must be undefiled. Imperative, interestingly, is still directed to the community. There are obviously implications for individuals, especially those who are married. 
But the main frame of the command is to all of us. What does this mean for us today? I think we should look ahead to the conjunction where it says for. So let's look at it closely. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge. This carries, I think, a sense of permissibility and exclusivity in a culture that struggled with licentiousness on one end and Gnosticism on the other, and I'll unpack those. So in Roman culture and in even early Christianity, you had a culture that either went one end of the spectrum, all things are permissible in Christ, right? No law, we're not under the law anymore. And then on the other side, uh, anything that's physical is bad and evil, only the spiritual is good. So you have these two ends of the spectrum, and the Christian teaching isn't trying to balance those two errors, It essentially gives a full green light to anything within the context of a husband and wife and a full red light and a warning of God's judgment against anything outside of that context of between husband and wife. And we struggle with the same things, either going to one end of the spectrum or the other. Different camps within broader Christianity make one error or the other. So, marriage, and how, how should we take this? And I'm just going to mention two applications. There's more we could say, maybe in a different context, but two applications. The marriage bed must be sacred and frequented. One, to, permit, to prevent temptation, to be sure. Just read 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. But also, I think, and more importantly, to show each other the preciousness of marriage. The purity of the marriage bed is a reflection of the sacredness of the church's union with Christ. As you, as a married person, seek to joyfully express your delight in your spouse, that is essentially reenacting the gospel. And number two, the marriage bed must be sacred and exclusive. As I said, all things are permissible between you and your spouse. Anything outside of that, in any manner, only invites divine judgment. It's not an expression between husband and wife. So it's a rejection of the Gnosticism on one hand and the licentiousness on the other. There are many other applications we could talk about, but I think if we just walked in obedience to those two, so many other things would fall into place. Sacred and frequented, sacred and exclusive. And then he says, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. The translation here is, God will judge the fornicators and the adulteress. Or the fornicators and the adulteress, God shall judge. And there's not much wiggle room at all with the translation. Beware of any preacher, teacher, book, church, theological camp, or trend in theology that softens the Bible's message on God's wrath against sexual immorality. And there are many. On the one hand, we shouldn't single out one type of sin as worse than the rest. Okay, That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible says. But on the other hand, because of how many people you can offend when you speak clearly about what the Bible says on this issue... I think we tend to fail the Lord and fail the world 
in speaking clearly about what the Bible says. When you don't speak the truth about divine judgment that is coming, that's not kind. That's not merciful. The two words here are straightforward. And in the context, specifically in contrast with marriage, it's clear what he's saying. Anything that is not of the marriage bed is off limits to the Christian. Period. The word here translated sexual immorality is used often in the New Testament, ten times, and it's to describe any type of activity, sexual activity outside of marriage. The other word translated here, adulterers, is used almost exclusively of that type of sin. So what does it mean? What does it mean for us? And might I say it's very clear. It's clear, and when lined up with other texts from Scripture... It is painfully clear what the Bible is saying. And I don't think I need to make the case to you in this room that sexual immorality is wrong. But, on the other hand, I want to give you the confidence to stand on the principles of Scripture so that you have the right mindset. As I said, it is not unkind, it is kind to tell the world what God is going to do. And to warn them in light of God's judgment. So let's talk a little bit of why this is given as a command to the group. This word translated here, sexual immorality, is used ten times in the New Testament. And three of them are in 1 Corinthians 5. If you would, go ahead and turn there. This is why I think this is given as a command to the group and not just to individual Christians. First Corinthians 5, in the context, is an issue of immorality within the church, and Paul is writing to discuss that and tell them what they should do. And I'm going to pick it up reading in verse 6. The church was essentially proud with themselves that they were so, quote-unquote, gracious and merciful and loving and not addressing it with severity. Verse 6, And your boasting is not good. Do you, know, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but with the the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. That's the same word. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or an idolater, or reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is talking about those who are persisting in sin, of any kind, unrepentantly. And the reason it matters is because sin of an individual affects the entire group. A little leaven leavens the whole up. So, so the summons here in Hebrews is don't be the leaven. 
Don't be that person and make sure that you offer the support, the care, the encouragement, and a context for confession so that this doesn't happen. The group is affected. It's not just a matter between you and the Lord or even just you and your spouse. No form of immorality is a victimless sin. And it's not just about your health and wholeness. It affects the whole group. So, just as an exhortation to parents, because I think this is timely. The whole world system and all the schemes of the enemy are transfixed on you, to be sure, but also on your children to entice them and to cause them to give themselves over to this kind of sin. And it's not just the forms that you might be thinking of. It's more pervasive. Have you, in the permissions and presence that you have given your children, made them into low-hanging fruit for the enemy? Obviously, that applies to us as well. But does your parenting, do your parenting decisions reflect the gravity of this text that God, the Almighty Holy One of Israel, will judge? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do not be deceived. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And I'm sorry it makes me sound so harsh or hard-hitting to even just say what the Bible plainly says about these things. But I'm not more compassionate than Jesus. And just to read what he says about these particular things and the severity we should have in rooting out causes to sin and areas of temptation in our life would, is, is ghastly. But even as we saw from 1 Corinthians 5, it's not just the matters of sexual immorality. He mentions greed even. We shouldn't focus on one type of sin to the exclusion of others. We shouldn't create a new sinner class in our culture like they had in Jesus' time, like tax collectors and sinners, those people over there. Right? What we do when we focus on one type of sin at the exclusion of others is that we make getting help impossible. And we're less eager to address other kinds of sins. You can be like the Pharisee, standing and praising God. Thank you for not making me like that tax collector over there, the sinners, the adulterous, the sexually immoral. Thank you that, that I do all these good things, and inwardly you're just full of dead men's bones. Sin is pervasive. These two particular bookends, if you will, represent two particular severe pitfalls that a lot of people fall into, but you can't focus on one at the exclusion of the other. And then he says, without any uh, word of transition, he says, keep your life free from the love of money. Now remember, the context is, is I think what he's saying is from, from the marriage bed to the bank account, like two ends of the spectrum, anything in between. Keep your life free from the love of money. And I think this actually represents a greater danger in some. There are many ways to fall off the rails of holiness. There are many ways to stray from the narrow path, if you will. But this one, 
the love of money in particular, I think represents the greatest danger for the church in the United States. Maybe not, but I think it is overlooked. The love of money and the dangers of wealth are spoken of even more frequently by Jesus than virtually any other sin. Why? Because it's dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because it's respectable. There are kinds of immorality that are just... Paul even says to the Corinthians, even the Gentiles don't even talk of such things. They, they reject that kind of immorality that you've fallen into. But wealth in almost every culture is esteemed. And the love of money, the binary within your heart, whether you love the stuff you have or don't, is something that no one can really see on the surface. It's respectable. And it's so respectable that we are exporting a false gospel to the ends of the earth that is prosperity. That you can so clothe this sin with Christian things that it is accepted as the word of God. That's why it's even more dangerous. There are so many supporting texts to this point. of The danger of wealth, the danger of the love of money. But I want to take you to one in particular from the Old Testament. Turn to Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 11. This is right before the people go in to take the land. Take care. Does that sound like anything we've seen from Hebrews? Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Moses knew what was going to happen when they took the land. And Joshua knew too. And the Lord himself knew, obviously. That when blessing comes, we're at more risk of being idolaters than when things are difficult. You see this theme repeated through judges. Things get easy, no enemies on any side, return to idolatry. But here he's not even speaking of any specific idol or false god. It's just you forget the Lord. The problem is not the possessions themselves. The problem is not the money itself. The problem is not the power that wealth gives you itself. If it is, if those were the problems, then the solution would just be to have less stuff. Take the path of a monk, maybe. The problem is our love of things. Our love of stuff. And the love of the power that money brings. Even the most poor among the sons and daughters of Adam struggle with this sin. It's not about how much stuff you have or don't have. It's about what you love. And when your aim is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your might, 
and love your neighbor as yourself, then you will be on a mission with the deadly aggression of an assassin to root out any competing loves with the love of God. That's how it works. When you love God most, there's not room for anything else. Jesus says himself, no man can serve two masters. And it's in this exact context of possessions. You can't serve the Lord and mammon is the Greek word. We leave it untranslated because we don't want to offend people at the idea of you can't serve your stuff. You can't serve your stuff in Jesus too. And it really does come down to that. Do you love Jesus most or do you love other stuff or things This is Palm Sunday, and there's a slight connection, and I'll kind of tease that out for you. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and the Pharisees saw the people rejoicing and celebrating, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees reacted negatively, not because of the theological implications, but because they feared Rome would come and take away their place. The Rome will see all the people stirred up and, and the, the potential toppling of the power structures and then Rome is going to come in and we're going to lose our power, our place, our possessions. So you see in the Pharisees a perfect contrast. Here is Jesus. Here he comes, your Messiah, but you love your stuff too much. And so you reject him and that day begin making schemes to capture him and kill him. And they succeeded. Is that you? Is that me? Are we so tied to our stuff? Do we hold our things so tightly and the power that those things give us that there's no room for Jesus when he comes along? May it not be. There's another way to take this statement. He says, um, if you look again at the passage from Hebrews 13. Keep your life free from the love of money. Another way to translate that is this. Let your manner of life be free from the love of money. Or live in a way that does not lend itself to the love of money. And that goes in complete opposition to our culture, even within Christian subculture. We're basically taught and handed on a platter from our youngest days in our education that what we need to do is to prepare to make money and to make it consistently and to prepare against debt and to prepare against downfall and that everything is oriented around the accumulation of stuff and the protection of stuff. And again, it's not that the stuff or the money, or the power is bad. It's that we like it too much. Our culture sells it to us and we gobble it up. And then he says, turning back to Hebrews 13, and be content with what you have. Here I think the author gives us the solution. How is it that we can live free of the love of money? Well, be content with what you have. Not go give everything away, hate stuff, um, don't get a degree, don't get a job, just uh, be absent of any possession so that you don't uh, go into temptation. No, it's be content. Be content with what you have.
It may be that some of us need to give stuff away in order to kill the love of money, but the key is the pursuit of contentment. What does that look like? What does it look like to pursue contentment? Should we be building our wealth so that we can be generous later? Should we be overly generous with no regard for tomorrow? Given away like a drunken sailor? Should we be holy misers on the one hand, or should we be monks or Jedis on the other and reject all worldly possessions? Is that what we should do as Christians? No, we should pursue contentment. There is a principle at work in your heart and mine as a component of our flesh that still wages war against your soul. And it just wants more. More of what? More of anything other than Jesus. That's what the flesh wants. Anything other than Jesus. Just more of it. Whatever I've found, whatever I like, I just want more of it and not the Lord himself. All of us, no matter how well you think you avoid the temptation to love money, you have a daily battle to be content. We hustle, we strive, we angst, we are frustrated, we desire that one next step. If I could just, if they could just, if we could just, if the U.S. could just, if the governor would just... And you fill in the blank with whatever you want. That's discontentment. That is disquiet before the Lord. A great measure of how we struggle with this, our degree of struggle with contentment, is shown by how little we pray. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with thanksgiving, make your request be known to God. And the realization of that hurts, honestly, that our level of contentment is an inverse relationship to our prayerlessness. In that specific passage from Philippians 4, where he says, in everything offer up your requests, he says, the Lord is at hand. And I think this awareness of God's nearness and the coming of the final day, the great and awesome day of the Lord, is how we begin to pursue contentment. And here's what he said. For, or the ground of our contentment, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the secret, if you will, and the key to contentment. Knowing who he is, and what he has done, and what he has promised. This is likely a reference to Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, where it's Moses speaking to Joshua, and he says this, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, the nations that they were about to go take over. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So a word that Moses speaks to Joshua about the Lord counts as the Lord himself speaking to us, saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's great how the Bible works. The key is changing your frame of reference. It shouldn't be what I have or don't have, or should I do this or that. Rather, our frame of reference is, as we've talked about in the weeks leading up to this, Mount Zion. What the Lord has done and prepared for those who love him. Brother or sister in Christ. 
Do you know what you have? Not what you will have one day, but what you already have now. You have your name permanently engraved in heaven. You have a right to draw near to the very throne of the Almighty. You have founding membership in the unshakable kingdom of Zion. You have the place of honor at the heavenly festival that's already beginning to break out among the angels who are there. You have a better country. You have a home and city, a heavenly one. And that's just to name a few of the things that you have right now in Christ. When you know those things for sure, when you are sure and confident of those things, more than your 401k or your retirement plan in general working out, then you will be liberated from the hooks that so easily sink into our heart to make us love wealth. Think of it this way. When the Lord has given himself to you, why do you need to love money? When the Lord is yours and your contentment is rooted in the Lord himself being yours, then why do you need to be allured by temptations to immorality or the love of money? So, the author says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is an allusion to at least four different Old Testament passages, all in the Psalms. And I would say it's actually a theme of the Psalms, that God is for me, who can be against me? That, that, that contrast is there over and over in the Psalms. Most clearly, I think it comes from Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you see the logic of the passage at work? Look at it closely. Be content for what, with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, or therefore, or on the basis of this understanding, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. When you believe what God has already said in the scriptures, you can have that same confidence. There is a faith-filled rhetorical question that your heart asks. What can man do to me? The, the answer is nothing. If you have God himself, if you've been given all the things that he has said clearly, he has already given you, and all the promises of what he's going to do, then what in the world can man do to me? The answer is nothing. But does it feel like nothing? <laughs> I mean, any one of us could get one phone call and our lives would be different forever. We are that fragile. We're at risk all the time. And no insurance policy can remove all the risk that exists in your life. Or the, tem or the possibility of great sorrow. But the point is this. When you have inherited Christ... And when you have in him all the things that he has said he has given you, then it does not matter what man or the world or Satan himself may do to you because you know exactly what you have in Christ. 
I want to read to you a quote from John Newton about this very perspective. When you know what you have, how it changes everything. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, and his carriage, you could put in car, should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. When God is your helper, when you know that he is at your right hand, what do you need to fear? When he is for you, not against you. How can you be ruled by the love of money? So where does this confidence come from? How can we have this same confidence? You can have God as your helper and know that he is your helper through union with Christ. If you, dear Christian, understand what it means to be in Christ, then the question is no longer, is God really for me? But rather, who or what can I fear? This is how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it in the first question and answer. The question is, what is your only hope in life and death? And this is part of the answer. The Lord Jesus Christ so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, all things must work together for my salvation. In the gospel, the message of salvation is not just that you get some blessings from God. It's that God so identifies himself with you that to love you or to love his son is exactly the same extension of his love. Through faith, you are united with him. He has therefore obligated himself through salvation, through the gospel, to bless you forever. To understand that, to, and this isn't some higher form of Christianity. This is the most basic understanding of what the gospel is. To be in Christ means that anything that Jesus deserves for unending eternities because of his work on the cross, through your faith in him, all of that then is deserved by you. That's astounding. And that is the open invitation to any one of us and all of us. When you understand this, how for you God is in Christ, there is no need for the love of money or being drawn off sides to the temptations of the flesh. This is the most basic understanding of the gospel, that if you have Christ, you have all things. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the confidence we can have that guards us against any form of impurity from the marriage bed to the bank account. You have God in Christ. And if you don't, If you have never trusted in Christ, may today be the day of salvation that God holds forth to you, not just being spared from his wrath, as great as that is, but all things. 
how gracious he is to extend that even to us who have been his enemies and sinned against him. Praise be to the Father, praise to the Son, praise to the Spirit, three in one, who have accomplished this together for us. Let's pray. Father, give us the will, the wisdom, and the strength to resist the temptations of this world, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of possessions that draw us away from the glorious inheritance that you've already given us. Might we stand firm and help each other remain consistent with what you've done for us in Christ. Do not desire other things or be crowded out by the weeds or the thorns, but to send our roots deep into the word and the promises that you've made us and the glory of the new heavens and the new earth to come. In Jesus' name, amen.